I'll start the intro. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Booey Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. With me again is Will and Bruce. Hey, everybody. When I grow up, I want to be Ernie Hudson. Everybody we all wants want to be Ernie Hudson, yeah. <laughs> the man's IMDb is such an awesomeness. It really but, yeah. is. Yeah, so uh, we're covering probably one of the most controversial films of the last 25 years, but also one of a very devoted cult film. Unfortunately, it's also spawned a lot of awful sequels, but we're talking about from 1994, The Crow, from director Alex Proyas, and of course, notoriously, Brandon Lee's final film. Yep, uh, so funny story. Uh, so back when I was in college, Tom and I used to be in a science fiction fantasy club called Weird, which I know we've talked about before on this podcast. So I didn't see this film until the year 2000 when Tom brought it along when we were doing our superhero double feature of The Crow and Puma Man. Yeah, I did not bring Puma Man. That was uh, another friend of ours named uh, Michael Canfield, who, uh, as he told me, had to drive to Gatlinburg to get it from a friend of his, which I still don't understand why he put that effort for a movie called Puma Man, which if, we'll cover that eventually, but uh, uh, Michigan <laughs> Theater already covered it very effectively. But, yes, now this is... I've always said this is really the first major real superhero film besides Batman and Mm -hmm. Superman, because this is the first real, I would call, comic book adaptation that's really more a direct-ish adaptation of a specific comic book story. You know, like Superman and Batman, those are kind of like just... I wouldn't call them, you know, you know, they're loosely developed ideas from, you know, the comic books. But The Crow, this is a very specific story. It was a very tight graphic you know, miniseries uh, by James Abar, inspired by the murder of his own girlfriend. And it's this really dark and gothic film. <clears throat> and, of course, tragically, while they were filming, the, you know, toward the end of the film, because a lot of people don't understand, they were like three-fourths way done shooting. Brandon Lee was accidentally killed when the gun that was used in one of the scenes to shoot him actually getting killed at the beginning of the film still had something basically a uh, part of a shell was in it when they fired it went straight into him and he died within a few minutes Uh, as actually the the background on this is fascinating so um they when you're when you're using prop guns uh a few things come to mind when you're using prop revolvers specifically uh, what they use often instead of blank rounds for shots where you have to see the gun are dummy rounds, which are rounds that have no powder, no primer, but have a sh- have a have a round in there because uh, they look better. Um, you know, you can see them. Blank shells don't actually have a, a bullet, so they don't you can't see them. So they use those uh, earlier in the film. They were pressed for time. So instead of having dummy, like actual professionally crafted dummy rounds made, they just ripped out some bullets from live rounds, dumped out the powder, and put the bullets back in. Which is fine, except they forgot to remove the primer. So in one of the scenes where the gun is fired, it ignited the primer, which pushed the bullet into the barrel, right? Then that gun was put away. And it wasn't checked again until the scene which killed Brandon Lee, which is, and the, the gunsmith, the, the weapons master, had already left the set. 
So that responsibility of checking all the weapons went to the props master who didn't know you should always check a gun every single time you pick it up. So he just assumed it was fine. Yeah. So they put in blank rounds, which have powder and primer but no bullet. Yeah, there are new rules now that um, weapons masters have to always be on set the entire time a weapon's being fired. Also, you do not shoot directly at a actor. You always shoot at an angle, and the camera just tricks. You know, you you and the camera is then used to you know rig the shots. Now, if you watch this film, there is a lot of close up shots of like direct you know guns being pointed at. I mean, this movie is gun crazy. I mean, there are so many guns. Sh- this is like you know, uh, I say Equilibrium or The Matrix has le- less gun firing than this film, which is interesting because you know Brandon Lee you know prior to this had been really getting the, like the new martial arts style going but he when he signed on he did not want to be a martial art film he wanted the, just like the uh james uh alex proyas and james abar wanted to be more of a tradition like you know violent shoot 'em up which is what they went for mm-hmm. and at this time the gun fu style brought over from hong kong cinema specifically by john woo who basically invented it was becoming very popular and they used a lot of elements from it in the yeah. crow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this film landed at perfect moment. Like this was a film at the moment. A hot topic was only five years old. Every cute girl I knew in 1993 had like a death t-shirt from Sandman. Like yeah. it was just how you rolled. Uh, and the aesthetic, the music, um, Brandon oh. Lee's performance, it was story. all just perfect spot on stuff. I mean, the comic was popular, uh, but it was also, it was ready to be popular much more broadly, but it wasn't as well known as like Sandman and things like that. Yeah, it was very much a, if you went to the comic shop, you'd find it, but it wasn't like they hadn't, you know, they, they could, it was like one of those great, like, hey, if you're looking for something dark and gloomy, here's this black and white comic, because, you know. Black and white comics were kind of a cult thing even then. I mean, aside from Ninja Turtles, most black and white comics weren't a big seller. So, yeah, this – but that was also why this movie got developed because the same people who had the rights to Ninja Turtles, you know, looked into what other black and white comics can we get the rights to, and they picked this one up. Hilarious I mean, this enough, is the, era to, yeah. the dark age of comics. You have indie titles exploded in this time. You've got, you know uh, – Artists started becoming household names. You've got the rise of image comics. You've got the rise of um, Dark Horse comics. You've got all these. Uh, this is Vertigo. This movie is the what I refer to as the pinnacle of mid '90s uh, culture, but right next to the mainstream. It's not fully mainstream, but it was right next to it, and this movie brought it into the mainstream. Absolutely. And, you know, we should point out this movie was a fairly low budget. I mean, the, the budget actually had to be increased to finish the film to include, you know, all the, I guess they call the fake or, you know, shimp versions of uh, Brandon Lee. But, you know, first time really to use CGI to put somebody's face on a double. Although a lot of those shots are just for him from the back. So that was you know you know they used the old fashioned trick which is it's the back of you, know, you see him in the back but they were able and you know if i got I, I watched the blu-ray version you can see the lines where his face is put on certain shots so it's a little more clear as you you know the better the resolution but still pretty effective how they did it oh yeah it was it, it's a uh, it was a good case for it too uh, because the film's so dark uh, you don't have to have you know the lighting doesn't need to be 
uh, a factor. So the the, 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 it's the overall aesthetic of the film is splendid. Yeah, it's the story and the actual action is so tight. And we just point out all of this, most of the choreography was done by Brandon Lee. He and his stunt double who had to take over for him were the ones who were orchestrating all of the action. So it's it's kind of basically or choreographing his own death but you know mm-hmm. that's unfortunately you know the nature we talk about this film but we should talk about the good things about this film because this film is fantastic well i mean well i mean i'm just going to put it there um it is a tragedy and tragedy suits this film like that's it's a film about tragedy it's a film about death and you know it's almost one of those ridiculously i understand why there are conspiracy theories it, 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 oh, yeah. it is ridiculously poetic in a weird, horrible way, uh, and, and 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 honestly, you know, I remember like this is one of the few films I saw that I like don't just remember. Oh yeah, I saw that film and remember the film, but I remember the circumstances. Like everyone knew he had died filming it, and it, it was supposed to be amazing. And you know, the entire like goth night at the masquerade in Atlanta had like a moment of silence and all of this. Uh, <laughs> it is. It was an event. I, I was like. It was ninety, you know, they were shooting it in ninety three. It was like right before Easter, I think, when it, ha- it was re- it was announced what had happened. I remember watching it on MTV and they announced he had died. And then, of course, the fall, you know, the next year they released the film. And I mean, I saw it. I, you know, it, you know, I was in high school, so you know, I was able to get somebody to buy his ticket. So we went and saw it, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I really like. I was, I was already get by getting deep into Nine Inch Nails and you know, you know, pretty heavy industrial rock anyway. So it was like a perfect meld for me. Mm-hmm. I still have the soundtrack on DVD. I mean, CD. Uh, this is yeah. another film, as we talked about before, where the soundtrack really makes the movie in Absolutely. a lot of ways. I mean, yes, the action is amazing. The performances are, well, let's call them adequate. Uh, I mean, you know, oh, no, no. there were several solid charismatic performances. Uh, yeah, um, but they're so quick. They're not, they don't, they don't linger. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nobody, Nobody is on screen any longer than they absolutely have to be. Fire yeah. it up. Fire it up. Fire, Fire it up. up. And this movie, I mean, when I say the performances were adequate, I mean, none of them were bad. There's no bad performances. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Well, Skank is supposed to be that way. That's the thing. The characters are the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, Sarah's a little wooden, but again, she's a traumatized little girl. What do you expect? Yeah. You know, yeah, no, they actually, just needed uh, her to be there and I be kind of. Actress, she was very good. Yeah, she was good. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, you're not watching this for the performances. <laughs> no, I mean, it, the but effect. they're not bad. They also don't detract from it either. Um, I think everyone did a good job with this. It's a very excellent adaptation of the story. Like, you know, you go read the comic and you go watch the movie. You're like, yeah, it's about right. Uh, they did cut some characters from the comic, but that's fine. Well, if you're uh, talking um, about the. Yeah, that that one character. I mean, they shot scenes with the, I guess yeah, these, skull cowboy. Yeah, the skull cowboy that yeah I, they cut for one because it would require a lot. It was not working, but also the fact of the matter is some that some of Brandon Lee's scenes that he didn't get to film were needed for the skull cowboy. So I'm glad they left that out because it's kind of the footage you can see is awkward. Yeah, well, it it, it yeah the the deleted scenes are not good. Um basically this is one of the few movies where i i look at it and i watch the deleted scenes and i go yeah i can see why that was cut <laughs> like no hesitation no man it'd be better if you put it back in. it's like no this movie nope. was better without that scene <laughs> nope absolutely absolutely agree 
And, you know, I, I mean, we talk about the soundtrack. I mean, Nine Inch Nails, you know, Violent Femmes, Jesus, Mary Chain, you know. Again, it, it's basically yeah, pick the industrial goth scene from the 90s and it's all here in this film. Yeah. And yeah. that's not no, that's it, not that's not a detrimental statement. That is not a a sl- a slam on anything. That is just this is the style this movie has. It executes it almost perfectly. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, a- a- everything from the costume to the set design to the way the performances were done. You know, knife licking, all that stuff. Like it was just. It, it, it's very I, so again on my little standard of or do, what were they shooting for? They were shooting for goth action insanity did they hit it yes they defined goth action insanity did they hit it despite it being a hard target and that's the other thing like all of the like imitations fall well short all of the sequels fall well short i don't know of anything else that like hits this point so knife edge on um the only other um, uh, go ahead tom I say the closest would be the Matrix would be the, but that really wasn't. I mean, that's there's an aesthetic, but that's and on, ironically, Dark City is the only other comparison, which is also Pariahs. I mean, that's mm. literally the only. Yeah, like, Dark the, City evokes this movie in terms of look and feel. Uh, I would say that there is another comic movie that does kind of capture a similar vibe, <clears throat> and that's Blade, the first yep. one. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, but it's sort of the it's sort of the counter vibe, right? So. Yeah, Blade's movie, got a lot of sunshine. Yeah, Blade also doesn't glamorize the dark, right? Yeah. Because no, it's, an anti- it's a movie about vampires and vampires are the bad guys. So the dark is bad, the light is good. And here's a guy who kind of walks between was the aesthetic of Blade. This movie is all at night. <laughs> there is very little daylight in this movie, except in the flashback sequences. Yeah, and there are, I mean, you see some dot scenes in the daytime, but it's so cloudy and so rainy and so <clears throat> grungy, you can't, the sun really doesn't shine. That's the thing that I think is fascinating. Like, they do a really good job pointing out, you know, this is a city that's constantly on fire. There's so much smoke that it's just a rotten place to live in. You know, they don't call it Detroit, but it clearly is Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you know, yep. I, I look closely. Like all the cars say, "Yeah, inner city police." <laughs> yeah, you know, so you know, there's almost like a that's almost like a rib on uh, mo, mo, I mean, Robocop, but it's the same thing. It's like it's, you know, it's clear what city they're referring to, especially all the Devil's Night, you know, fires and destruction. That's a Detroit staple. Well, that's sort of a very upper, you know, upper Rust Belt kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, like I didn't know what Devil's Night was. Until I saw this movie, I was like, "Is that? Did they make that up?" And then someone's like, "No, no, that's actually a thing." And I was like, "Really?" <laughs> yep. So, and it's a pretty messed up the fact that you know the night before Halloween, arson and destruction is common. I mean, like, <laughs> but and the thing is, like, we don't get a clarification like why Top Dollar wants everything blown up. You would think, well, he's trying to buy all the buildings, or he's got some. No, he just likes to destroy stuff, and it's yeah, no, he he's a simple man with simple pleasures. Um, Destruction and you know destruction and, and and chaos are part of the the bag. I mean, power good, money good. Having you know a weird knifey girlfriend good. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I want a weird. Laughter. Let's not forget that. Yeah, yeah. I, I want I, I want one of those too. Um, that'd be great. Um, let's get on <laughs> that. But um, yeah, and and just you know, again, uh, the scenery is chewed every time that character is on screen, and it's splendid. Yeah, and 
I love his. I mean, he's got Tony Todd as a henchman. He's got Candyman as his henchman. <laughs> you know, it's like, yep. Yeah, I mean, that's a, and he is like he's playing him so different than anything else. Because like when he's playing like you know Kern and you know Star Trek, it's like usually if it's Tony Todd, he's always got this like scowling look. No, this one he's like the most like cerebral, calmest one out of everyone there. He's like the yeah, it's a, this relaxed stare. He's like even when he like in like the more violent sequences, he's just the most relaxed one. Mm-hmm. Call, call, <laughs> bang, fuck, I'm dead. I love yeah. that line. Yeah, and, so uh... Uh, let's talk about uh, <laughs> T-Bird's game because this is a perfect like, you know, oh, they're so tropes good. of bad, of like villains. <laughs> they they put me in a mind of the, of the tropes you saw in Con Air, right? Yes. Where the performances almost outshine the main character. Not quite as much as in Con Air, because I'll give it to Brendan Lee. Boy could act. Yes, I mean, he, could. he did a good oh, job. The manic, I'm going to kill you, taunting the sing-songitiness of it all. Very nice. But yeah, yeah, he's almost always quoting lyrics or poems. Like, not ra- rarely is he talking in just prose. Yeah, but the gang itself, I mean, these are all characters. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word. They all have very distinct motifs. Um, there's not a bad performance in the lot. I mean, and they all have a very specific like vice too. Okay, so Tintin's you know money yeah, you know, and you know, his metal. So he's always about like trying to hawk stuff. Uh, you know, sick boy's a junkie. Um, T birds. I guess he's kind of like a narcissist. You know, he's just. You know, and then we got a skank who's just flat out. You know. You know, sloth kind of. Th- I mean, these are all kind of metaphors on sins, but it, it's you know, it's it's fascinating, like how they you know he kills them all in a very specific way to how they live. Yep, and uh, I mean, again, it's all very stylized. Very, it, it, this is very much a '90s movie, and it may be, it may, it may be not be the '90s movie, but it's certainly one of the '90s movies. Oh yeah. It's like it kind of set the ground for a lot of movies to come after this. I mean, I, I think you're right. You know, Blade wouldn't exist without this movie being a hit. Um, the Matrix definitely you, would not have existed if this had been a hit. Or would have been very different. Yeah, X-Men as well. Like once you get like further down, like you know, three or four years later, you start seeing the the imagery from this film popping up in other films. You're like, oh, wow, this is groundbreaking. No, it was in The Crow originally. You guys just tend to forget that. Now, I should point out, there's a specific amount of people who refused, or were so angry this movie was even released because mm-hmm. of the fact that you know he was tragically killed in a mistake. And the sequence where he got killed is still in the movie. You don't see the shot of him getting shot, but the sequence where you know, the guy who shot him, there's still the sh- footage of him shooting at him. So it's one, you know, that's not the take that he got killed, but the fact of the matter is they still included the sequence that he got killed. And I've heard some people, there was a call for a boycott of the film initially before it came out. Fortunately, you know, I think a lot of people just like, let's see it out of tribute to Brandon Lee versus say, you know, don't, you know, don't boycott something until you, you know, have the truth about it. Well, that, that part of that made this movie probably a bigger hit than it would have been. I think, I think so. it would have already been a hit, even if this tragedy hadn't occurred. But I think it was a bigger hit because of the tragedy. Because people were like, let's go see it. You know, this was his last film, and it would be a tribute to him, and da-da-da-da. And, I mean, the movie had, what, $25 million as its budget? 
roughly. Uh, it was supposed to be less than that, but they had to up it, you know, for the uh, yeah, they had to because yeah. Miramax swept in and, and put in more money. Well, uh, yeah, but they it bought made... it from uh, Paramount had abandoned the film after that, so yeah, and yeah, it so made it had a significant release regardless. So I think I think it would have been a hit even without the tragedy. It just would have been under Paramount, not Miramax. Um, yeah, because Brandon Lee was already starting to become an up and coming star. I mean, we should point out he'd done Rapid Fire in '92. That was a it was a modest hit, but it already made him a name. Like, hey, he's Bruce Lee's son. He can. He'd already been in like a TV kung fu uh, reunion or Return of the Kung Fu movie with you know, David Carradine. Yeah, believe it or not, that kung fu, the that other kung fu series from the '90s, that was risen developed for him and David Carradine. So it's like he was already becoming this kind of guy. Hollywood was really itching to get him on a bunch of stuff. You know, I've yeah. heard talk he was possibly in line for Batman. Even you know that's how quickly everybody wanted him in Hollywood. Yeah, well, he had talent. I mean, and you can see it in this performance. Yeah, I mean, and and also that he's a tragedy. Yeah, he was so physically awesome too. According to anyone who saw him like do you know, martial arts, he was almost just as effective as his father. He didn't have he wasn't near as cut as his father because he didn't want to be that cut. But he was just as flexible and just as you know proficient. And that's that's the thing that's kind of like sad is you know when so they make this movie right around the time he gets killed. They're actually developing and about to start shooting the Bruce Lee biopic as well, which. <laughs> another like creepy twist because uh, you know we've been dancing around the fact is that you know after he died this brought up the theory that bruce lee himself had been cursed his whole family by divulging you know secrets of you know martial arts to the western audience and that you know that he'd been cursed by different uh, groups and that's why he died young and why his son died young to keep certain things secret or as a punishment so yeah, it's one of those messed up you know legacies that this film has. And we should point out a lot of actions happen on the set, but also there were things like everyone was doing cocaine off the side, yeah, you know, on the side of the film. Except you, know, it was you know definitely an unprofessional crew they were using, and you know they were shooting out of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where a lot of lower budget films, including Teenage Mutant Turtles, was shot at. <laughs> but unfortunately, this this crew took. You know, did not do anything safe, and the director. It was his first serious movie. He was not, you know, prepared to handle some of the problems that happened during the film. You know, I don't really don't blame Alex Proyas. What he made is fantastic, but I think it's the example is they didn't have the right people helping him behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I still just uh, it's one of those things where they just. I mean, I'll just say this: if that's the way they were living life at that point, it suits the the material you know there's just a certain degree to which a little self-destructiveness a little risk-taking is part and parcel of the themes not that i'm saying people should get killed in the production of art it's just that a certain kind of recklessness is evident here uh the gunplay and the fights do not look like they were safe they're you know uh maybe they're they're really artists and they were but uh one wonders I'm going to go with probably not, given the stuff from that we've read about uh, behind the scenes, about how crazy the shoots were, about how pressed for time they were, because they were running out of time. And Yeah, that's uh, the other problem. A lot of accidents started happening is because they started taking shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they should have been given more time, but it was also, Brandon Lee had a wedding he was planning, he, he was... He had to leave the set soon because he was about to get married. Like his girlfriend was his assistant on the film. 
he literally was like, I got to be done. You know, they planned this big wedding. So he's like, I got to be done by this specific date. So he was agreeing to work extra hours that probably weren't made the, you know, all the shooting even unsafe. So yeah, that's, it's just, like I said, it was kind of a cursed film. Now let's talk about some, what's, what do you guys think is one of the best scenes in the movie? That's tough. I mean, there's so many scenes that are good for different reasons. I think the scene where he goes back to his apartment after he's been resurrected by the crow Mm -hmm. and the symbolism of him jumping out the window he was originally thrown out of is it's a beautiful shot. Um, The gunfights. I think my favorite is still the big shootout uh, where he drops in on, on um, top dollars like guys and they're all on the table and they're just unloading bullets and then he just stands back up. (laughs) Yeah, no, that I like that scene better than the final pieces. Um, I, it just was better. Um, I also just love. Um, I, I okay, it is. Imp- I don't know if it's just because you he he was such a fine actor, but like all of the like the the over the top pain and grief scenes, they work. They're not yeah. laughable. Like that is. So I don't know how to put it into one thing, but I think that's the thing. Like this could easily. Like Dark City is a little silly, you know, like uh, Dark City, you watch it and you're like, okay, this, this could be a drinking game here. Oh, they're so scary. But nothing in here do I find laughable. Like it just still, you know, after many viewings, it still hits. Well, his grief scenes are certainly better than John Travolta's at Blowout. So, <laughs> oh God, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I but mean... there's, there, like, like there's nothing here. I mean, yes, it's all a very, very over the top thing, but like it lands. And and that's I the mean, part of it that I find that's impressive yeah. because it's so easy to miss this mark and become laughable. Yeah, it's very and operatic, hate... but not like over the top. I, I think that's. I'd almost say it is over the top, but it's over the top just enough. I hate to toss around the word Shakespearean, but. Shakespeare is not subtle. Shakespeare no. punches you in the face with its theme over and over again. And this movie is also not subtle. You know, there's nothing no. subtle about it. Yeah. But it's not so completely ridiculous that you go, yep, that's dumb. It works because it rides that edge. It's very well done. Yeah, I would say my my two favorite scenes probably, you know, when he's in the um the pawn shop getting, you know, I mean, that's the case where like, why is he punish going after this guy? And you're like, Oh, he's got Shelly's ring. And you're like, Oh, this guy is, you know, bankrolls Tintin and basically the rest of the gang. Like even the, you know, every time they mug or kill somebody, they're selling their stuff to him. He's just that he, he and he's probably selling them for like, you know, like 50 bucks for somebody's wedding ring. So he's making profit. And at the same time, he's just hoarding all those rings too. And yeah, I love the fact that he kind of comes and he torments the guy. He finds the rings and then he's like, "Does that gasoline I smell?" And, <laughs> yeah, and of course the yeah. actor's great. That's John Polito, which you know um, from. And I'm sure after um, seeing Miller's Crossing, Bruce, you can just keep seeing high high hat all the time. <laughs> but no, like um, uh, even the ridiculous, you know, gunkata craziness in this thing 
it, it's still like, it just no, it's, it just doesn't hit that um, uncanny suspension of disbelief valley. Like, yeah. it just doesn't do it. It's still like compelling to watch, even though you know. And he, you know, that little side shuffle he does at one point where he sort of dances away from them. That's silly, but it's the character being mockingly, grotesquely silly. And it's scary. Even. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a punk. I mean, you get the idea that he, when he was alive, he was a, a not a prankster but he was kind of defiant about everything like why would they want us to keep that awful apartment in that awful building it was you know it's kind of almost like this is our place we, we like it we ain't move it it's you know they're very there's kind of defiance he has with, with all society um something else i you know another scene i really love and i think we all can agree is just a great scene is uh when he kills fun boy because that is such a you know, the only thing that's a little sucky is the cgi and his or effects on his hand but just the way he's tormenting fun boy the way he uh detoxes uh, uh darla which that's such mm-hmm. a messed up you know practical effect and this you know the way he's you know you know basically like the way he talks the way the quotes he makes and just the way he's also the way fun boy is reacting like you got blood on my sheets <laughs> he's so doped up yeah. and i you know i thought about why did he put him in the water oh he's trying to sober him up so when he does kill him, he'll feel the pain for real, and it's that's basically what he's doing. He's you know giving him a cold bath to uh, shock the uh, shock him back to regular sobriety. And yeah. it's I don't know, there's something just messed up about that sequence, but also very powerful too. And mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah, know. it's inherently silly, but it works because of context and because of the selling of the performances. Yeah, mm-hmm. all three of those actors are great in that scene. He is a vengeful ghost come to get them with no mercy and to make them suffer. Like this is, this is rude. You know, uh, it is definitely rude. Uh, there, there's nothing caring about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny. Uh, everyone keeps wondering like, why is um, the co- the te- cop constantly getting like, you know, badgered by the upper, you know, detectives and stuff like that. Well, it's clear top dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep, but good old Ernie Hudson just trying to earn his honest dollar and do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the, right, welcome to Ernie Hudson. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's and and that, again, that's another very '90s movie trope, especially action movies. The city is. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. It's you're looking at something that looked at the world of darkness and said, "Yeah, we can do that." I mean, mm-hmm. and the comic actually probably influenced the White Wolf oh, yeah. World of Darkness. I mean, like 100% <laughs> right there. Oh, I mean, I, we know people who worked there in the 90s. This film was like on VHS in the yeah. back throughout all the... <laughs> as soon as they had it, it just ran in the break room, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the and the cultural impact this movie had. I mean, we've already talked a lot about it, but let's talk about the not movie stuff. I mean... This reached really far, a lot farther than you would have expected it to go. I mean, to the point where a professional wrestler, Sting, mm-hmm. of the at the time WCW, adopted the crow makeup as his costume persona, right? And it yeah. completely oh, changed the-, the attitude of his character arc, which up to that point had been sort of like Hulk Hogan light. Mm-hmm. I mean, and now he's this vengeful wrestler who comes in with a baseball bat and beats people up who cross him and it's just i mean that is such a that is so far away from movies you know, know. 
from a but cultural standpoint. Point. Yeah, I mean, I, I will freely admit in 1997 uh, for Halloween, you know, my freshman year at UT, I was the crow. Uh, many I, people I, I, are. I, I did it once too. <laughs> I didn't, but I don't have. I, I, I can't pull off that look at all. I mean, I could before be like I became fat too crow. fat. I, yeah, I could be I like too crow. Fat. Well, I mean, honestly, the it took a while to put that makeup on. If I could do, you know, if people can do Buddy Thor, I could probably do Buddy Buddy Crow, I guess. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm planning to do uh, do Thor at uh, uh, Disney next, you know, in a couple weeks when we go. So there you go. Charlie Charlie keeps saying, "Daddy, you need to be Fat Thor." I'm like, "Dude, Thor, that's his name." <laughs> but no, oh, uh, I, guys, I, I can't really think of anything else uh, I have to say about this. Is there anything? Any final thoughts you guys have? I mean, if anybody in the audience hasn't seen this film, by all means, uh, unless you just can't handle uh, dark themes and or don't really really dislike gunplay movies. Uh, but to call it either of those is almost uh, a short sell. So I, I strongly encourage anyone to watch it. If you haven't seen it in years, I encourage a rewatch. This film bears rewatching uh, in that same way that I said Blade Runner does. I don't think it's quite as poignant like in terms of the sets and the and, and the just stills that you could snap out of it and burn in your memory but it's in the league it's in there with that film and um it's just uh and and frankly the ways you can get it now uh they, they the digital restore uh the apple tv one is fantastic it looks amazing in the hd so uh it's definitely a film i highly encourage people to review um uh, yeah, this is possibly, in my feeling, the most successful film we've discussed. Just us. I know you've discussed more films with other co-hosts. Yeah, I mean, but this film just, I can't imagine anything outside of it that they would want to do to make it better. Um, it's it's it, it, every, every second on screen is what it needs to be, no more, no less. Yeah, I will agree with Bruce 100%. Um, this is an unabashedly good movie. Uh, it does deal with some very dark themes, and that could be very disturbing to people. And I would totally understand if someone's like, this would make me super uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, in the end, it's a good film. It hits yeah. all the right notes. It does what it needs to do. Yeah, I mean, you could call it a nerdy film because Lord knows there are some nerdiness when it comes to The Crow. I mean, we should point out this later spun off a TV series with Mark DeCosco as eric and you know there's let's been, not there's talk a, about the tv series <laughs> hey not you know we good. haven't brought up crow you know city of angels or salvation or uh, what was the that's because they're terrible they were direct to video for a reason and they yeah. should have stayed in the well, abyss city of angels had, been... a, had a theatrical release and boy was it oh did it really oh, oh my yeah. god Oh yeah, they had high expectations. You know, we'll eventually. If we want to do that one eventually, it'll be worth it just for how weird they off track that movie got. So, God. Okay. but no, uh, unfortunately, uh, as we point out, they've never successfully made any, and they keep trying to announce they're going to do a remake. With I heard at one point Bradley Cooper was going to write and direct the new version. I think we all agree. Just leave it. I mean, this is a case where you can't you can't come close to making this work. This was almost like it only could work. And really the fact that Brandon died in this film kind of adds to the fact that don't try. There's no way to make it work. There's certain things that happen in this film that are, are on the screen, which is unfortunately also why the movie's so good. So folks, uh, 
I hope you all enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you you know have any comments, please hit us up on our Facebook group, Fans of Good, Bad, and Nerdy Movie Podcast, or on Twitter. Also, please write us some reviews. You know, we never get to hear many of so you know, hit us up on iTunes or whatever option you're using. I know we're getting a more wider group of listeners on different platforms. Thank you all for listening, especially those of you on Spotify, Pod Attic, whatever you're using. Please, thanks for listening. Guys, uh, has you got any final thoughts? Call, call, bang, fuck, I'm dead. I don't have any final thoughts. I mean, how can I follow that up, really? All right, folks, thanks for listening. And please, 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 um, if you're going to uh, leave your buddy in the car to go get the brews, if you, if he gets kidnapped, steal a better car. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody. I'm coming, T-Bird, I'm coming. <laughs> ah, skank, baby. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>